Welcome to the Block and Tackle Show, hosted by Carl Block. Carl is a partner in the law firm of Loeb & Loeb here in Los Angeles, California. He will be tackling some of the biggest issues in business today. Listen, learn, and enjoy as he leaves no stone unturned during deep conversations with some of today's most amazing business leaders. Welcome to the show. Carl Block is both a corporate lawyer and a corporate restructuring partner in the Los Angeles office of Loeb & Loeb LLP. Nothing in the podcast should be construed as legal advice. To the extent legal issues are discussed, please consult an attorney if you have any questions or need advice relating to the matters discussed. This podcast may constitute attorney advertising in certain jurisdictions. The views expressed in the podcast are not necessarily the views of Loeb & Loeb or Carl Block. Carl and each guest reserves the right to change any opinions that may be expressed on the show and disagree with what others say, even if such disagreement is not expressed during the podcast. On today's edition of the Block and Tackle Show, I'm very pleased to have Clint Carnell. Clint Carnell is a purpose-driven entrepreneur, investor, and CEO with five successful exits. He has led companies for the last 20 years in take public, private equity, and out-of-the-garage startups. Beauty Health, uh, traded on NASDAQ as Skin, was purchased for $175 million under private equity and was valued at $4.5 billion when Clint uh, stepped away in 2021. And Clint, it's great for you to be here today. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate you having me. Okay. So one of the great things about having a serial entrepreneur and operator, and I know you know that I have a little bit of a bias in favor of operators, not just the spreadsheet guys, is you got a lot on your resume. And so I know one of the things that you're really involved in deeply right now is Embrace. Yeah. So why don't you tell our audience, what Embrace is about, why you decided to go there, what you're doing that it's a Clint Carnell thing, so that's disruptive, and why it's better than, you know, what else might be out there in, in the marketplace. That's great, uh, Carl. Thanks for the opportunity, and uh, great to see you. Um, yeah, Embrace is an incredible technology. It's in the orthodontic space, teeth straightening, and uh, I originally came in as a board member uh, to really help our founder, Dr. John Pham, who's a remarkable human being and brilliant engineer orthodontist. Uh, this technology was incubated out of USC uh, when he was in school there, uh, originally on uh, cleft lip and palate children that go through you know tremendously traumatic surgeries um, to to really help their appearance and most often have really uh, crooked, complicated uh, teeth and, and jaw issues. Embrace is really simple. It's behind the teeth braces. We work like braces, but about 30% faster, but they're literally invisible. So you can brush, you can floss, you can live your life as normal. And uh, we like to say that you don't have to look worse before you look better. So it's got a great origin story out of USC working on really challenging cases with, with children that have had a lot of trauma in their life uh, to what now is going to be, I think, the greatest consumer healthcare care uh, opportunity in teeth straightening. So, you know, what's interesting to me is that it sounds so remarkably simple that there'd be a lot of, hey, why didn't I think of that? And, you know, is, is there anything from your perspective why it took so long for somebody to develop this concept and to be able to exploit it commercially? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, 
putting braces, which are already bulky and inconvenient on the front has been around forever. People have tried to put them on the back. It's called lingual. Um, but you just took something that was bulky and not very sophisticated on the front side and put it on the back side. So it never really took off. It's better accepted in, in EMEA and APAC. Um, but what John did with the team of scientists is really remarkable. We used nitinol. John had originally been a Boeing engineer, and uh, this technology was developed by NASA. And it's essentially nitinol, which is programmable shape memory wire. So wow. literally, we work with, um, you come in and you get a scan, just like you would if you were doing a liner's digital dentistry. And then we co-design to program a wire with your orthodontist to move your teeth exactly the way they want. And so we've taken something that is a really simple device that creates remarkable results, but it's actually very complex in the way that comes to the market. Um, and it really is AI driven. We're, we're learning about the way every ortho thinks about teeth straightening and then have them learn how teeth move. But it's a really simple wire that if you stepped over it when you were modeling a house, you toss it in the trash. Uh, what's incredible is that you can program it to move teeth. And this was derived from NASA technology? It was. So nitinol or nitai, as it's commonly referred to, literally can be shaped uh, to, uh, to move things. And uh, it's often used in things like satellites, where if you think about it, how do they get satellites up? They put them in a ball, and then when it reaches, reaches a certain temperature and atmospheric pressure, it, it unfolds into this beautiful thing that we often know as a satellite. So it was developed for that purpose originally and, uh, and adopted to what I think is one of the largest markets. 75% of us need our teeth straightened, and you know we hope to be the choice for orthodontists around the world. Interesting. Now, have you already exploited it internationally, or so far is your core domestic? Core is domestic. It's a very expensive endeavor. We've raised um, approximately $250 million to this point. Uh, the reason is that you're really building treatment algorithms with software programs up front. Uh, then you're learning how every ortho thinks about this. So you're cataloging the way they think about teeth movement. And then we all have such individualized teeth um, that we're continually making that better. And then finally, our manufacturing uh, plant will look more like a Tesla plant. It's robotic. It's increasingly automated. Uh, and then we monitor the appliance when it's working in the mouth. So we're actually a software company that programs hardware, which happens to be a medical device that consumers love. So it's a really, really unique white space offering that I think has tremendous potential and should be a real company of consequence. That's incredible. So, you know, some questions flow from that. For example, did you say that your software is customized to the um, views and experience of particular orthodontists so that every everybody could have a different software package? Yeah, it's not really a package. Um, what The way it works is really simple. You come in and get a scan. We call that a tooth print because... Mm -hmm. You're, you're, as you are, I'm sure are well aware, our teeth are also individual. They actually are recognized by the federal government, just like your fingerprints. So it's a tooth print. Um, there's a joke in ortho land that you can put three orthos in a room and come back with eight different treatment plans because moving teeth is sequential. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is not only taking that scan and developing a treatment plan, but then over time learn how individual orthos like to move that particular malocclusion, which is how we define the teeth movement that's required. And, uh, and then we take that file and we send it to our machines to program the wire, increasingly mm -hmm. robotic. And then once the appliance is fitted or embraced, we actually monitor with things like dental monitoring or grin, the progress of the teeth movement. And we're continually learning how to think about the ortho more efficiently, produce a better product, and then move teeth in a better fashion. So it really is an AI-driven 
uh, technology that, um, you know, for a 53 year old dude like me, I've had to really amp up my ability to learn that particular um, you know, area of expertise. That, that, that is so fascinating. So not only are you sort of custom designing thing based upon treatment programs, you actually have, you know, now experience like a database of what works and how it works. So in theory, orthodontists could consult with you and say, hey, what seems to be most effective in a particular population or with somebody with these particular teeth prints? Absolutely. I mean, I think ultimately our goal is to be, you know, the most knowledgeable orthodontist assistant in the world. What's great, you know, you and I live in Southern California, great access to amazing ortho treatments in the United States. Um, But my goal is that, you know, we fast forward five, six, seven years from now, um, you may be in an underdeveloped country, but have access to an ortho, get the exact same treatment you would get in Beverly Hills or Orange County, California. So it's really, really awesome because the technology literally puts the teeth straightening process on autopilot. So we take something that's very complex and we simplify it uh, to really make uh, teeth straightening uh, predictable, uh, very efficient and very comfortable. Our pain scores are at one on a one to 10 and there's no zero. So after initial seven to 10 day break in, literally you don't even remember you have them on. So it's it's really quite a magical technology that we have a lot of work to do requires a lot of cash, a lot of smart people, you know, a lot of strong execution, but um, I think it's just time and money and uh, extremely excited to bring this to the market. You know, this sounds unbelievable, Clint, and definitely it's disruptive. So it's you and that's great. And I'm thinking, just thinking to myself as we're chatting, whether, you know, the World Health Organization or the UN would love to hear from you. Oh, that's interesting. Because you have the ability to, as you say, reach out to undeveloped countries and help with this that may themselves may not have the infrastructure, but you have some really knowledgeable people in the WHO and you have, you know, in other international organizations. And I've never heard of anything like this. This is so disruptive. That's a great idea, Carl. You know, um, that's why, you know, over over the years you've been my counsel because you're always an out-of-the-box thinker and super super knowledgeable about a variety of topics. So it's a wonderful idea. I appreciate you bringing me on. That may be the breakthrough idea we need. I'll give you you credit twice and then I'll take credit the third time. (laughs) Okay. So listen, this is an amazing discussion about Embrace. I want to talk about uh, gray space now, because again, I see this as another Clint Carnell disruptive signature situation. So why don't you tell me how you formed it, why you formed it and what you're doing? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes we get to a point in our career where, where I am and you look back and you go, wow, I, you know, all those choices were perfectly unique to make me positioned for where I am now in my career. And I was so fortunate early on to be an M&A person in dialysis. I started my own dialysis centers and it was based on, can we do this better? Can we make it more con- consumer patient friendly? Can we provide better care, better facilities, better staff? Uh, then I was involved in early LASIK development in RK, which is a consumer healthcare. Uh, approach where people were doing private money and then later Solta with Thermage, Fraxel, Clear and Brilliant, later Hydrofacial and now other things. And so through that 20 year period, um, I was at kind of the, I would say, cross crossroads of consumer appetite for better options, more knowledgeable options with technology and real medical applications. And I was on the business side. And what I realized when I left Hydrofacial is um, those executives um, those entrepreneurs, the the money behind those ideas, we we've 
kind of coined the term the new healthcare economy. Sure. Um, there's just a, I had a great ecosystem out there of people that could be beneficial. So when I left hydrofacial, what do you want to do with your life? And I uh, decided to help the ecosystem incubate, you know, bring ideas with the right capital structure, the right executive teams, um, so that they can really maximize the value and bring these companies to, to fruition better. So Grayspace was um, essentially, you know, accumulation of kind of my life's work to this point. And um, we're having a lot of fun. Uh, the, the idea behind it is, you know, business decisions are rarely black and white. They're usually ambiguous or gray sure. by nature. And our goal is to come in and simplify your strategy, which accelerates execution. It makes you feel like you've made a decision that's either black or white. Because in the end, once you hire great people, develop a good culture, just execute. And the financial per- performance should follow. So that's the idea behind Grayspace. See, that's obviously very, very interesting. One of the things that I would say, and again, getting back to my bias about operators. So there's a lot of consulting companies out there, a lot of them, but not all of them have C-suite level operators or people who have personally participated in, uh, you know, obtaining capital, using capital, doing business plans, hiring executive teams, et cetera. It's not very typical. Again, this is another disruptive business space. And it sounds amazing. Do you, how many different kinds of industries do you see gray space getting into? I think it could be any. Um, we've focused really on kind of consumer healthcare uh, because that's where the expertise, my partner, Eddie Yoon, has been mm-hmm. written a book on super consumers, uh, which we can talk about. He's published in HBR. He's on CNBC, TD Ameritrade quite often. And um, he came out of a really high-end consulting firm and has really um, consulted for companies like Gillette, Keurig, Nestle, sure. iRobot, Ergo. Um, and so I would say that if I'm the operator side, Eddie's the analytical side. Together, I think we're a pretty good combination in helping these companies in an area that we're specific. But right behind me, we have a master plan. It was a direct ripoff from what Elon Musk did with Tesla back in 06. And that's the idea that you know, sometimes companies spend so many years, so many millions of dollars, tons of people involved to define a strategy. And it's a 500 page book that nobody remembers what the hell it's about. And you have to go dust it off when somebody asks what your strategy is. Um, Eddie and I are convinced that you can take all those ideas and define it into one page. In our case, for Embrace, it's above my shoulder. It's around the office. It's a one page master plan that's written in cartoon form so that everybody from my executive team investors down to the youngest engineer can come in and understand exactly what we're doing. So we develop a master plan, you know, it's usually around the company and it's very, very clear. And it says, you know, what's your defining purpose or mission? Um, What are the value creation drivers that are going to create value? And then what are the things you have to do? And what are the anchoring philosophies? You know, I was a soccer player. I was a good basketball player about in the day, but when I thought I was going to tap out at five, eight, I didn't think you weren't a center. Yeah, I wasn't born a center. So, you know, I think you have to look at what are your natural attributes. Sure. But it's weird, the, the, the consulting firms can be great, a lot of smart people there, but often they don't know how to take that strategy into execution. I think the people and culture are really what drives financial performance. So you've got to have both, a left and a right hand. A, uh, a little birdie has always said to me, whenever uh, the birdie invests in companies, at least 50% of it is who's the management team and how do they work together? Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes I think that uh, gets lost at times, 
likewise when you're talking about you know the scheme or plan how to get from point a to point b mm-hmm. that you know as an operator that you basically have to use the kiss principle and you don't want to have a 500 page book that it is uh not necessarily understandable uh or executable by people yeah look i'm uh duke bachelor of arts that probably should have you know been thrown out of that fine institution <laughs> um, but uh you know i because i'm fairly simple in the way i think about things and i'm a generalist but i I've, i mean i'm working in a business right now where we have over 30 software engineers we're working with orthodontists some of the most highly educated uh people on the planet and we're doing something very complex in ai you know i'm more like the conductor i don't i don't play first chair in any of the instruments i have to be able to recognize the talent make sure we're all on the same sheet of music and then listen for what performance looks like. I really can't do much. I once heard a a mentor of mine say, look, the CEO job is super simple. You own the strategy, own the people and culture, and you own financial performance, everything else you delegate. And it's a little tongue in cheek, but I find it's very, very true. Just choose a strategy, focus on the type of people, the culture and how that team performs um, and have all the KPIs for all the financial performance. But, you know, if you turn on CNBC or, uh, any of the news channels on business, they never talk about the people and culture. It's amazing. They only talk about financial performance and they usually make it one guy or one woman that's driving, you know, this ultimate business. And I just think that's really disingenuous on the way companies really work. It's funny that you say that because I think the some of the people on in the financial media, and this is true of everything, you could say it's true of lawyers. If you haven't seen the inside of a business, you don't actually know what it takes to operate the business and you know not to do a pun about the name of this show but the blocking and tackling that you do can be very elementary at some level but it's important that a skilled navigator does this yeah so so when you're doing uh you know gray space and you're consulting i assume most of the time it's with the ceo or the other people in the c-suite when you're doing that yeah um, we require the ceo support you know, and sure. uh, usually we're called by the CEO uh-huh. uh, and uh, and then we work usually with the most senior uh, team members. And, um, you know, and, and usually somebody is challenged or they have too many opportunities. And look, we all do it. I mean, I'm guilty of it. You know, you get I don't like to compare uh, business to war because I think those are very different issues. But to use the, the metaphor, you know, sometimes you get caught in the fog of war. Sure. So, you know. There's just a lot of stuff going on. So often it's just coming in almost as a confidant to the CEO, spend a lot of time listening to them and their senior team and constituents. Um, and we, we call it defining the ability to pierce through the noise. What's really important and what's just noise. And then let's anchor on that and start to develop a really simple master plan. And, you know, it's still young in our uh, development, but I think it's being well received um and uh and you know we're very very excited about it. it's led to some really interesting business opportunities that uh that i certainly can talk about uh one being uh, Gineo or the glow to facial brand in which mm-hmm. we were originally the advisor and then we became uh a partner and 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 potential uh, or an owner uh with the uh the the parent company i get it do you often find in the c-suite that the person who becomes the ceo is either the founder who had the idea as the visionary or somebody who was brought in probably in sales most likely 
but but doesn't have a lot of experience being a CEO, doesn't have experience building a management team, doesn't have experience managing a management team. Yeah, I mean, you know this well. You 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 have access to you know, to the world's top CEOs, I think that the CEO's job is exponentially harder than their direct reports uh, for that exact reason. I think, you know, investors also tend to characterize CEOs and put them in boxes. And, um, you know, some of the world's most uh, important companies still have founder CEOs. And yet, how often do you and I hear, well, we've got to remove the founder to bring in a administrator. And I think, um, when I look at a lot of the decisions that are made, you you sometimes have CEOs in two camps, um, builders, which sometimes can be buyers when sure. companies need acquisitions or expansion, and then you have buyers. And I find the buyers are rarely builders because they're usually deal guys. So I think more important than the title founder or you know administrative CEO. Um, professional CEO for what it is. I think it's, um, does the company have a need and does the CEO have that skill set? And if you put those two together, can you create a lot of value? Sure. Um, that's re- that, that takes some time for boards and investors, you know, to make sure. And, and I also think succession planning is important. If a CEO does well, makes a lot of money, you know, is really a selfless or purpose-driven leader, they should be looking for somebody that can stand on their shoulders and take the company to the next stage. And, um, so it's a dynamic process. I think the CEO is the most important hire for any organization. I think uh, companies make a big mistake when they throw out the founder because often the founder got them there because they understand the secret sauce. So there's a lot of art and science. And unfortunately, a, a lot of mistakes are made in that, uh, in my experience. No, I completely understand that. And uh, I'm going to bring it back to gray space in a second. But what also is seems to be interesting, and you've been on both sides of this, is people assume that board members are omniscient and they know everything and they've run companies and they can diagnose problems and they can figure out how to put together strategic plans and implement them. But that isn't necessarily the case, is it? And they're not necessarily great managers of CEOs either. Yeah, I mean, by, from governance standards, they're not supposed to. I mean, the, job, the board's job really is, is um, two things, to, to hire and fire the CEO if needed, um, and to to really provide good governance, making sure that management's not you know stealing investors' money, uh, not you know that they're being ethical in the way they conduct their business, and to, to challenge and ask the right questions around strategy. I think you really get into trouble if you start running the company by committee, or if um, if boards start to get overactive. Now, look, sometimes you have a great board member that decides to be more than that, and they're an advisor or an executive chairman. If they really get in there and understand the business, they can be incredibly helpful. Um, but the best boards I see are the people that understand the role of a board, the role of management, the role of investors, and everybody plays their part. Almost every company I've come into, and some that I've been part of, is when everybody forgets their position. And that can be disastrous. I've seen so much capital uh, destroyed through egos or boards trying to run the company or management not being transparent with the board because a lot of it comes down to uh, any other team dynamic. I once was on a, a treasure hunt uh, or, a, a, you know, basically a treasure hunt. And I asked the, the provider out in the, the, the woods of Utah, I said, what's the, what's the best and the worst group to come through? She says, little kids always do the best, like little kids. 
boards are always the worst because everybody thinks to the boss, little kids just start looking at skill sets and naturally appoint a leader and go to work together. And I thought, man, that just described the way that you can look at the trajectory of how we communicate as people sometimes. No, I, I, I completely understand. What, what is also kind of ironic to me is kind of what you're doing in gray space and who you are as a person you would be the exception to that because if you've got a president or a, a ceo who is running the company and they may have a vision they may be a builder they may be an operator whatever their skill set is or whatever sometimes you want to talk to somebody else who's been a ceo and say what did you ever have a situation like this and again, a lot of board members don't have that experience. And it's not you, Clint Carnell, running the company. Mm -hmm. It's you being a mentor or an advisor in your capacity as a board member or a consultant where, where you create a safe space for people on the executive team to talk to you about stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm a huge fan of, of mentoring, particularly for the CEO. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate my, my business, Orange Twist, which you're aware of as a, a chain of medical spas, we call them treatment shops. And in that situation, we were taking Beauty Health public. Uh, it was too much to be running Orange Twist and Beauty Health. So I was fortunate to recruit a gentleman named Paul Gaynor that had come out of Disney. We're about the same age. And I mean, he's an exceptional executive. In many cases, had far greater experience with more employees in a world-class organization than I did. And we were able to transition me out of the CEO role where he's in the CEO role and developed a, you know, a relationship where I'm now a board member but also we serve to help each other in respective CEO roles. I read the Wall Street Journal and FT every day because my challenges and my opportunities rarely come out of looking at my own business. It's sure. some parallel. And I think that a CEO with a broad network of other CEOs um, really functions at a much higher level. I think CEOs get in a lot of trouble when they're like, I'm the boss, I know, I don't need help. All those, I'm the boss, I don't need help, I don't have a network. I just don't see those be very successful CEOs. How the, how the hell can one person know all the things they need to know? And also, everybody by accident lies to the CEO. You're always getting filtered information. So having a network of somebody that's at your peer level and can shoot straight and can have, you know, really clear eyes about the subject can be invaluable to a CEO. So, you know, my recommendation is don't try to be the king CEO. Try to be the, the active external network CEO where people can really shoot straight with you. I know, I totally get that. And so when you come in in gray space and you're helping CEOs and the executive team, I assume you are, some people use the expression like the rabbi or the priest, come talk to me, tell me what you're worried about, tell me what your challenges are, tell me what you think are the impediments to get from point A to point B, what's your vision, and you create an environment where if they don't have that trusted mentor on the board or among the investor group, it can be safe with you for you to talk to them. Yeah, look, our job, um, regardless of when we come in, if we have a view on whether the CEO is capable or not, our job mm -hmm. is to help the CEO be successful. Sure. Um, and I, I never weigh in when the CEO says, what do you think about my people? I said, look, we can talk about skill sets. Your job is to keep them employed or decide to, to, to move on. So our, our job is more like a performance coach. Sure. Uh, if you think about the CEO, they have so many constituents, right? They've got investors, board members, They've got customers, they've got employees, and rarely can they be totally straight with any one constituent because it's usually pretty dynamic, pretty ambiguous. Yeah. Um, you're coaching a team um, all around you. And so we try to just really be that, um, you know, 
part performance coach, strength, strength uh, coach. Uh, also, you know, pe- people are human. They need to talk. And the CEO often can say, look, I can shoot straight with you. And so there's a lot of trust that we have to build with that CEO. Sure. And in, the, in the best cases, it's where they shoot straight and we know what they're thinking. I was just, I'm a huge golf fan. I'm a terrible golfer, but I was just watching, you know, Ricky Fowler go through his, um, you know, fall from amazing down to 132 back into amazing. And just really incredible when he won the things that he talked about, that life is more than just winning. Um, and then to hear his coach, uh, Butch Harmon, talk about the journey that he went through. And, you know, the key takeaway is even these super athletes, you know, have personal needs. And so we try to go in and be that person that um, can help the CEO be successful because they're, they're, their job is to coach their team, not our job. We can't make their teams better. Sure. Unless they're coaching them better. Sure. I totally get that. Now, how do you work? Are you fee-based? Do you take equity? What is it that you do? Yeah, we've done both. Depends on the situation. Um, you know, one thing we're not interested in is being like maybe some of the large uh, advisory firms where you, I joke, they stick the needle in you and they go ask your executives for all their problems and all their opportunities. And then they, they keep a phase and they color code them and have these clever ways. In the end, you end up with a multi-million dollar bill. Um, Eddie taught me this. Let's go in and diagnose, more, more like the Navy SEALs, go in, diagnose the situation, work on a plan of action, and then deliver something that you can work on. And uh, we try to do that really within a 90-day uh, capacity. So we tend to not work with a lot of people or a lot of companies. Um, and we try to, we don't want to, what we say, stick the needle in and milk them for fees because we we think they'll they'll tell their friends about us. They'll go to other companies. But more importantly, we're just trying to help them create value. And so we just chosen to work that way in a very intense, you know, 90 to 100 day uh, phase that culminates in a master plan and um, and a lot of really, I would say, soul searching in terms of what's wrong with their business. What what's the desired breakthrough outcome? And then how do we put together a simple plan that they can execute against? So we're not interested in consulting for the next five years for them. No, I totally get it. That was a great discussion about gray space. But part of your background, because you've done everything from forming a company to taking it into the public markets, which not a lot of people actually can say that they've done on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk to you. Talk to us about your your experience in doing an IPO, what you would say to uh, businesses that are contemplating an IPO, what whether it might be right for them or not, and what kind of things you look at you know, demystify the process for a lot of people, because as you know, whether they're venture backed, angel backed, or just self-funded, people always have the vision of IPO. And so war stories from you about what it was like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sure. Be very helpful, I think. Sure. No, that's great. Yeah. I'll try to demystify it. Look, it's one opinion, right? And there's a lot of experienced people out there, but I'll tell you the things that have been helpful to me. Um, uh, First for the operators is the IPO is the start of the race. Sure. Uh, not the finish. And I think a lot of people talk about it almost like I finished and I'm IPOing and you, you need to really be prepared as an operator uh, that it really is the start and you're going to be tired. Your team's going to be tired. It's going to take a lot of work. Um, but that's why it can also be very, very exciting. Um, you go from having one, two, three, four bosses, whether it's private equity or venture capital uh, to just having thousands or maybe even millions of bosses. And those are your shareholders at that point. Um couple things that are super helpful. Uh, one is really, really crystallize your story where it's very simple to understand the old elevator pitch because 
investors and public markets make split decisions about whether they want to invest or not invest because you're liquid and they can get in and out. So if you want to attract quality investors, regardless of your industry, have a simple and compelling story. Um, start running your company 18, 24 months before you go public because the scrutiny of being a public company and having to overperform on what you say you will do really needs to be dialed in. And that's why some of these young, early public companies have a successful debut and then fail because they don't do what you have to do. And that's have uh, really financial performance where you can set targets well in advance and then you meet, beat and raise. Incredibly important. The way in which you prepare for that is quite simple. You, you do non-deal roadshows with bankers. You start pitching to analysts where they'll listen to you. You go to meetings and do the private sector track if you can, because in the end, you want the IPO to be easy, where people have known your story for years, where they've heard the ups and downs, where they, they trust you and the management team. And so they're willing to invest in you at what can be a very opportunistic time for everyone to make a lot of money. Um, so that's incredibly important. And I just find people talk a lot of times about an IPO, like as this defining huge moment. But the truth is, it's just a day where you go from private to public and you become a liquid stock. But all the work you did to get there has to set you up uh, for meaningful meet, beat and raise performance. So the people start to believe what you say when you say it. And, um, and hopefully that demystifies it. Uh, other than that, I find that it's just a great bar on learning about good governance being able to measure your performance, having the right executives in place, having a good pipeline, having a good marketing message, having a good sales team. It just really makes, it's going, it's, it's going from Little League where nobody videotaped you to ESPN where everybody's critiquing you. So you better be ready for that because all of your friends know how much money you make and whether you're any good or not. So that's probably the only difference that's a little painful as a human being. Do you find that uh, people also understand the compliance strictures after they're a public company, or is it something that they they worry about later? You know, it is. Um, it's probably one of the most challenging things. We took uh, Beauty Health, you know, public, and I was um, in Long Beach. It was a pretty prominent company to go public, and you just have to be incredibly careful what you say. All of a sudden, your friends and your relatives, everybody you know, um, you have to be incredibly. Um, incredibly aware of what you can and can't say as a public company executive. And it, it is incredibly surprising to me how people will, will be good friends, relatives, people in your network that are in and out of your stock. And, um, you know, I, um, I think you, it, it is important that you understand compliance. It's important you have a good GC. You know, often private equity and venture capital doesn't like to hire a GC, as you well know, Carl. And then all of a sudden you go public and they're like, we need an amazing GC. And I just think my advice to companies would be invest in the GC, invest in HR, invest in your IR well in advance of going public because you want that to be a working team. You don't want to be a new public company with a bunch of new team members where you don't know their competency. Um, and I think a good experienced public company GC, a good IR firm, either inside or outside, um, and, uh, and good compliance from your CFO, having a CFO with public company experience, incredibly important as well. Some people just are super good. When we were taking beauty health, uh, public, I remember everybody gripes about going public, you know, it's like executives gripe about it. Everybody talks about governance. And I asked my team, I said, are we a, a better team than most teams? They're like, oh yeah, we're amazing. I said, are we that much better? Oh yeah, we're that much better boss. I said, great. Then we are going to shut up the whining about going public. And we're going to say, we're so much better. We're going to be we use an IPO 
as an opportunity to sharpen our sword and be better. And investors will recognize that. And I think if you look at the the skin story, we were able to accomplish that in a pretty short period of time in a turbulent market. So I think it's your perspective, how you look at it. I totally get that. Another thing that uh, sometimes I wonder about is whether companies actually understand how important enterprise risk analysis is, because when you're going public, as you say, there's a lot more eyes on you. And, and, you know, when you make a mistake, it can be magnified. Have you, you know, when you're talking to businesses or people who think that they want to go public, do they seem to understand that rather than just how much money they're going to have and where, where they're going to have that beach house? No, because I, I think everybody's focused, not everybody, there's exceptions, but I think that's one of the things that happens if you have inexperienced CEOs, inexperienced managers, inexperienced investors that don't have the right advisors, is everybody's thinking about the financial outcome. Where's the deal priced? How much am I going to make? What's my dilution? How much do we sell? The bankers are worried about their fees. Um, it's super important. Carl, you're great at this. You know, you, you look at risk um, and ask those questions that maybe people aren't thinking about ahead of time. So having a really competent counsel that does a lot of IPOs, that has seen the pitches that you're going to need to hold on or hit is incredibly important. You know, I really, I don't like the way the disclosures have gotten where they're so thick and they say everything, you know, a meteor is going to hit this company. And so that's one of the risks. I would, as a CEO and as an investor, really like to see real risks, almost like a level of risk in these things, because I think that would help clarify some of the disclosures. But um, you, you've got to, you know, I came up through sales and marketing, so we're mostly accelerator. The older I've gotten, the more experienced I've gotten, the more I look at risk first, because if I believe the idea, I already believe in the accelerator. So it's good to have someone like you uh, alongside the, the board to, to point out the things that we need to. And often you just got to disclose it and have a plan of action. Sure. Uh, but I think looking at risk is incredibly important because once it happens, people are like you didn't think about this, you can look really stupid. So it's, it's good to ask the tough questions from a you know, trusted advisor. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, it, it's human nature if you believe in an idea you can get so close to the idea you don't want to brook any what if situations. But I think I've seen this in small companies trying to grow. How much are they actually thinking about that? And and on a related front, you know, I'm sure you see CEOs who say, I'm in love with the idea, therefore I must be able to be a public company. And they overlook, again, some of the blocking and tackling that you need to do to actually get from that point A to point B. Yeah, it's super weird. You know, it's like the careful what you ask for. I mean, um, what CEO should know is for the most part, by the way, if you go public, you're not selling anything until you leave. (laughs) And you can even talk about all the 10B plans uh, and ways that you can, but there's always scrutiny. You're always answering the questions. So as a CEO, it's really important to not think about individual wealth. Um, and, uh, And I think, you know, my advice would just be, I've done a couple out of my garage, a couple of VC, a couple of private equity, couple of public is um, think about your business and the type of investors you want and and then the cap structure that makes sense. Because if your investors aren't aligned with your vision and what you see as, as value creation, that can really create some funky dynamics that can really um, get you focused on the wrong thing. So an IPO to me, yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, but it's a little bit, I tell people like when you buy a new car or you buy a new house, it's cool for a couple of days. I tell people international business sounds cool to your 
your neighbors, but really when you actually do international business, it just means you're tired a lot. <laughs> and, um, a lot of early morning phone yeah. calls. Yeah, I think an IPO is very much the same way. Once you do it, you're like, what was it? I mean, you hear so many CEOs. What was Somebody just asked me on the golf course two days ago, would you do an IPO again? And I'm like, yeah, for the right company. But some companies sure. shouldn't do an IPO. So I think it depends on your company profile. I totally get that. Okay, so I'm going to also ask you, because and related to this, on the SPAC situation. Not everybody has been through a D-SPAC uh, transaction you have. What was your experience uh, going through this SPAC process? And what would you say also to entrepreneurs about whether their company um, might be appropriate for a SPAC going public transaction? Yeah, I had a positive uh, SPAC experience. I mean, we um, we were going public the traditional way and um, that was fall of, of 20. And uh, during the pandemic, our business had been really damaged and we were fortunate to, to attract a SPAC owner that had some industry expertise. And so for what it, it, what it did for us is for my private equity firm, it took the mystery out of the price. And then we raised a pipe and we had a, a lot of support already from analysts uh, that wanted to cover the stock. And so we got a really good group of investors very quick to fill our pipe. And then we went public, and I think by the time we were maybe a month or two in, we had 11 analysts. Uh, we went out and did a convertible note for a billion dollars uh, that provided the company a lot of capital. And, you know, we took it from what was an initial, I think, $1.1 billion listing to $4.5 billion, you know, in a, in a high multiple market. Um, but for us, it was a really elegant solution. Our business had gone from you know, really a $250, $300 million run rate and 25% EBITDA to minus 1 million in sales in April of 2020 and almost out of business. And to be rebuilding that, but have people that had a vision for why it should and take the uncertainty out of the pricing, it'll allow us to focus on really taking the company public. So SPAC can really be the right vehicle. You know, I think where some of these SPACs get in trouble is if the company wasn't ready to be public, if it didn't have a real operating business, if it couldn't predict growth and, and EBITDA. But we were fortunate to have a business that should have been just a straight public company. But in our particular case, the SPAC was actually a pretty elegant vehicle to recognize the value for the shareholders. And there's so much press about uh, SPACs, good and bad. But as, as you say, it, it's not a cookie cutter situation. Every company has to be right for it. The, the, the actual uh, acquirer also has to be somebody that you can do business with. Yeah, look, I, I've, um, you know, before the market kind of collapsed on them, I had my own SPAC on, on file. And I, I think for the right company with the right sponsor, uh, with a management team that's ready to be public, a SPAC is a great vehicle. I, I know there's some negative press on them right now, but I think that's unfair because I think, you know, as investors, we naturally gravitate in a herd mentality. And when that happens, there's always going to be stuff that happens around the edges. But you know, if you look at Beauty Health, that allowed it to come to the market, raise a lot of capital, do an acquisition and, um, you know, invest in that global brand. So I have no uh, particular comment on SPACs other than like if you're a public company or you're running it for private equity or venture, it's out of your garage. Have a great strategy with a clear story, hire great people and perform. And if, if a SPAC is the best vehicle to get your company into the public markets and reward investors, you know, I would I would look at as as an as another option. Sure. And as you say, you know, there's a common theme that seems to be running through our discussion today. If you have a good a good plan and good people, and you know how to execute it, there's a lot of things good that can happen for your company. And if you don't, 
you can run into a lot of problems. Yeah, I love the name. I love the name of your place. I mean, you're you know you're you're really fortunate to have a cool last name. <laughs> for, a, for an attorney, you're really a clever marketeer. There you go. Um, but what I think is is interesting, uh, Carl, is you know whether you turn on CNBC, you don't hear anything about how business really works, right? Um, even when you talk to your board or investors, nobody really wants to know. But really, the blocking and tackling the everyday stuff that nobody really wants to talk about is where great companies are forged. Um, you know, they say that companies are not uh, sold, they're bought. I sure. would say companies are not accidentally successful unless you just happen to create a macro tailwind and buyers that are out there in a market chasing something that's pixie dust. But for the most part, I, you know, I don't see a lot of shortcuts to overnight success. I see a lot of, you know, heavy forging of companies into great into great entities um, with a lot of hard work. Not always the same people, too. Sometimes you see generations of leaders come through a company to ultimately get it to where it needs to go. Totally agree with that. Okay, so look, for our last topic, I want to talk about that, the health and beauty industry, because obviously you've been in this space for a long time. What's exciting to you about the future, not just for Embrace and some of your other companies? Where do you, how big do you think it can grow? What's going to be revolutionary or disruptive in, in the space yeah, that's no, a great question. I think, you know, I accidentally got into aesthetics in 05 and, and candidly, it was a very different market. I think nobody knew about it. And people that did know about it thought that people were either shallow, insecure, narcissist. You know, they had some terrible insecurity they were trying to cover up. And what's been a lot of fun over the last 18 years, um, I thought I was going to be in the business for a minute. Mm -hmm. I was looking at it as a vehicle to turn around a company and then go on and run another company, probably back in ophthalmology where I spent half my career. Um, what I've seen health and wellness evolve to is it's just part of everybody's lifestyle. So diet, exercise, and taking care of yourself uh, physically um, has become, you know, I think more routine than not. And, you know, whether it's when we started Orange Twist, uh, eight years ago, we put it next to Whole Foods and Barry's Boot Camp and a yoga studio. People thought we were insane. They're like, nobody will ever want any of their neighbors to see them getting out of a car to go get Botox or hydrofacial, now a glow to facial or um, fillers. Like that's naughty. It's behind the scenes. And now, you know, I sit at restaurants, I'm at the airport, I'm talking to friends. And because I'm in the business, you know, people are asking me about the technology. I had an experience that I was in a member guest golf tournament and one of the guys and I flew back and, and he says, Hey, you know, um, my wife and sister would like to introduce him. He knew nothing about what I was doing. He's my age, but all of a sudden I met his wife and sister and like, you know, we were having a really robust conversation about all the options. And he's like, they really know all the stuff that you do. And the amount of time still men go like, Oh my God, my wife knows all the technologies and services you've been involved in. I'm pretty popular at the kids, you know, soccer games. <laughs> And matches like that. But increasingly, it's 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 more people of color, less affluent, more men. And I, I think the macro tailwinds are incredible. And now I think people realize it's part of your overall health and wellness, not just some, you know, uh, treatment you do to make yourself feel better or look younger. The trend is towards less invasive, minimal. You don't want to look different. Almost every actor that I know um, that's in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. The reason they look great now is they've used these non-invasive treatments to stay looking as good as they're staying in shape with. And it's, it's really gratifying to be part of, I guess, one of the early pioneers in that. You know, it's very interesting on, on that last point that you raised that uh, there's probably 
a good bit of ageism in our society right now. And you have people that are working longer and wanting to stay healthy and wanting to appear youthful. So I totally, totally get that. Mm -hmm. And from and from within this industry, do you see other technological breakthroughs in certain areas that really excite you or um, certain synergies with various market segments that you think, you know, coming soon to a theater near you, so to speak? I, I think um, more, I would say it's the maturity, the maturity of the industry. I think you still have um, right now you have too many uh, manufacturers of the products and services like uh -huh you know, sell, 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 like features and benefits. And then you have a lot of providers where there's a lot of heavy, you know, good gross margins. They want to provide, make, make money. And I think um, if you talk to consumers, most consumers really don't know about these, right? You screen out Botox and maybe cool sculpting, hydrofacial people haven't heard of these things. So when you talk to the average consumer and they find out I'm in the space, they go, one is, um, does it work? That's their first question. Does it hurt? Does it make me look different? And is it worth it? That's the four questions almost any naive consumer talks about. And so I think what I'd like to see in my specific area, whether it's Embrace or the things we're doing with Glow 2 Facial or Orange Twist's approach, is we always talk about we're really not selling aesthetic treatments. We're selling confidence. So we need to have well-trained providers. The products need to be safe and effective. But I think we need to articulate to the consumer, who's typically naive to the treatments, um, a program and an amount of services that that both appeal to their wallet and where they are in their lifestyle, um, but really deliver upon the results because there's still too much mm, snake oil or overpromising or quick fix mentality out there that restricts the marketplace. And I think we'll just all do better with more transparency. And you see that in almost every business that starts out highly fragmented Wild West and matures into a, a large market. A lot of the companies are still very small. A lot of the providers are still very small. And yet the overall macro is very large. And to me, we just got to match that up so the consumers trust everybody. Okay. Well, look, Clint, I've had you for a minute and I know you've got uh, a couple of railroads to run, but oh. I'm really happy that you joined us on the Block and Tackle show. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be very, very well received. And hopefully you won't get too much ribbing at your golf club. And, uh, and hopefully we'll have you back. That's great. Carl, thanks so much for the opportunity. Great to see you. No, you too. And thanks for coming. Take care. Bye now. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more info on the show, please visit blockandtackleshow.com. And you can also email me at carl at blockandtackleshow.com. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>